Today on CityCast DC, it's Hispanic Heritage Month, and we are talking with the family behind the longest standing Salvadoran restaurant in a town that has been a magnet for folks from El Salvador. Ana Reyes's family opened El Tamarindo in Adams Morgan in the 1980s, and she's here to tell us all about its history, which tracks that of the local Salvadoran community. And of course, I want to ask her all about its food. It's Monday, October 3rd, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Your family opened the super popular Adams Morgan restaurant, El Tamarindo, in what, 1982? 1982, yes. And it is the oldest Salvadoran eatery in D.C.? Yes. So the restaurant and I were born the same year. I have no idea how my parents did that, but <laughs> <laughs> they lived to tell the story. So there were, I want to say, maybe two or three other Salvadoran eateries or Salvadoran owned, but uh, maybe like small locations at the time, um, none of which are open anymore. So what was El Tamarindo like when it opened in 1982? Was it in the same place it is now? Sure. So it was in the same place. It was only, um, so you walk in now, where you walk in now, that's the main dining room. It was only that space. And it used to be a, I want to say it used to be a pawn shop and they slowly turned it into a restaurant. But the space that's next to that main dining room where the bar is, that used to be an Ethiopian restaurant. And I want to say that was in 95 that they purchased it and expanded over. And then we also have the parking lot, which turned into a wonderful patio because of the pandemic that we've had that space also for several years. So one of the things that happened during this time is the Salvadoran population in this region grew, but it also migrated physically within the region and is less concentrated close to Adams Morgan, where you guys are. Did that change sure. the clientele or the feel of the place? It did. So a lot of people don't know this, but there was a huge Latino and Salvadoran population in Adams Morgan. And in the 80s and I want to say early 90s, they celebrated the Latino festival right on 18th Street in Adams Morgan because that's where the Latino population was kind of concentrated. But through gentrification and all of these, uh, the city changing and the community growing, it kind of spread out to some areas in Virginia and Maryland, just the surrounding DMV area, the suburbs. So you're like this little kid. And your parents have a restaurant, which is an unusual thing. Yeah. And you are presumably toddling around the tables because they're working their tails off at the place. You got to have some wild stories from growing up in that world. So my siblings and I, we all pretty much grew up there. And I would have hated to have worked there because there was four little kids always running around the restaurant. I remember one guy, one server who used to go, pinche niños, it's like, effing kids <laughs> because we used to like entertain ourselves and we would throw spitballs to like have fun and he'd have to like go and sweep we were very little but we just spent a lot of time there because our parents were working seven days a week 12 hour days my mom would pick us up from school we'd have dinner at the restaurant do homework and then she'd drop us off but she'd come back to the restaurant but Adams Morgan, I think, is the area that saw us grow up. And there's a lot of Salvadoran kids, well, not kids anymore, but kids that grew up in Adams Morgan that have that same sentiment that it feels like home. Did your parents, did they have any background doing restaurants before they came to this country? No. So there must have so, been some crazy growing pains. 
Yes, they both did manual labor, but my dad was a little bit, I guess he was more in charge of that side and my mom did the business aspect and together they were just an incredible team, right? But my dad's experience came from working in a Mexican restaurant on the waterfront. It's no longer there. It was called Casa Maria and he worked pretty much all the back of the house, dishwasher, prepping, cook. And that's kind of how his knowledge of restaurant, thats that was his background. And my mom's business acumen came from, my mom grew up living in an uncle's house. She lost her parents very early on. And she's from a small town called Intipuca in El Salvador. So they had a small little, you can call it a convenience store, right? But it's pretty much you're running a little convenience store out of your living room. And she'd wake up at 4 a.m., bake the bread and then they'd send her out to go and sell it and she'd always tell me these stories how she she never she would never I don't know if she wasn't allowed to or it was just like a personal goal of hers to never come back with like the basket still full with bread but she would never lose a sale and that was on a very small scale but that's where she was able to develop that mentality and bring it here and she's the one who contributed that that business she was business savvy and pretty much the major financial decision she was the decision Wait, maker so, on that so Anna I heard that she didn't even know how to make pupusas she um, didn't yeah. she learned in Washington DC she did she did but she has a restaurant that caters to Salvadorans and Latinos are people that are have arrived here from a different country and are just kind of people craving. who know their pupusas well. People who know pupusas and they really just want a space where they can feel at home, right? Because it's always hot in El Salvador. Maybe they're here in the dead of winter. It's super cold. They don't speak the language. Their environment is completely different. And so here she is, and she has a restaurant. So you, you're going to figure it out, how to sell pupusas. But she started off, she used to, you know those little tortilla makers? Mm -hmm. It's like the two discs, and then you flatten out the tortilla. So she would make one tortilla. You know, she'd put the little ball of dough in the center. She'd make one tortilla. And then she would put cheese in the center. She'd make another little tortilla. And then she would put them together and flatten it out and put it on the griddle. So it's probably about a 15-minute process for her to make one pupusa. That's not... I take it this is not the agreed upon way to make pupusas. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, not at all. And she still loses it laughing when she tells this story. <laughs> but she said she had a group of like 15 people coming from New York. Salvadorans and they were so happy that they had found a Salvadoran restaurant and they ordered 60 pupusas and she was like absolutely not absolutely not tell them to order steak and I'm gonna get them 10 pupusas <laughs> you know like <laughs> and there was somebody that was working in the kitchen at the time and she's like I'm gonna show you how to do this <laughs> how to do this properly you know so she showed her the recipe of the chicharron which is the it's like the how we prep the pork to make the pupusa revuelta, which is the most popular one. It's the pork and cheese, right? She showed her how to prep that and then the process of how to make it just in your hands without using the little tortilla maker. And you can make a pupusa. The ladies in the kitchen now, they make, I don't know, in 10 in a minute. It's incredible. <laughs> so from um, one in, in 15 minutes to 10 in one minute. Yeah. <laughs> 
Let's so, talk actual food, because I'm otherwise just going to geek out all day about restaurant demographics. When it comes to Salvadoran food, I think a lot of people think of pupusas first. Can you explain what they are? Sure. So pupusas are, it's kind of like a corn tortilla, right? But you mix it with different fillings, which is kind of really fun about the pupusa because it's very versatile and it, you can adopt it whatever diet you follow, right? They're naturally gluten-free because it's made with corn flour, the masa. So the, like I said, the most popular one is revuelta, which is pork and cheese. And the pork, it's almost like you prepare the pork with different veggies and seasonings and then you puree it. So it's almost like a pate. And so you mix that with cheese and then you put it on the grill. You serve it with curtido, which is like, a, it's almost like a coleslaw, but instead of the mayonnaise, it's pickled. And the salsa de pupusa, which is pretty much just tomatoes and onions and bell peppers and spices. And that's cooked and pureed also to make a really nice sauce. In, in El Salvador, you eat that for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Um, you'll normally find people making them either out of their houses. And in the smaller towns, you can also see like the ladies will bring out their griddles to the corner of the street and with a little propane tank and sell pupusas right in the corner of the street. And it's very affordable and delicious. All right, tell me some other favorites. There's a very hearty soup. It's called mariscada. And typically you eat it in, I've had it at the beach in El Salvador, but by the ocean. So it's a seafood soup and it has an entire lobster, shrimp, mussels, fish, and you have the option of having it just the broth, or you can put cream in it, so it's a little bit creamy. And you can eat that with tortillas, tostadas, like you let the tortilla cook a little bit more so it's a little bit crispy. So it's absolutely delicious. You could have it with a little bit of rice or a cheese pupusa. Uh, it's a whole lobster. I think that, I wanna say $32.99 or something. But it's kind of an experience. Like you have to, you don't just walk by and randomly say, oh, I'm going to go and have a mariscada really quickly. I feel like you, you know, maybe you don't eat, you know, in the morning so you can have a mariscada. And it's very hands-on, right? So it's not something that you would eat maybe on a first day unless you're really vibing with that person and it's everything is cool. But it's very hands-on and... It's almost like there, there's so many different ingredients that they all go very nicely together. But it's like the more you keep looking into the soup, the more ingredients that you find. And it's like a little surprise, a surprise after another surprise. So it's really good. Oh, well, wow. are there other things that you particularly loved? Uh, sure. So I the empanadas de platano are absolutely delicious. Most people are familiar with empanadas, the ones with the flour dough. But Sure. What's the Salvadoran twist on it? Yep. So we don't use the flour. It's the, instead of the tortilla or the dough, it's actually made out of plantain. So it's sweet. And on the inside, we put poliada, which is like, it's like a cinnamon milk custard. And so, yeah, we make the empanada out of the sweet plantain. That plantain has to be ripe. Otherwise, it's a completely different texture and flavor. And then you sprinkle a little bit of sugar on top because you have to have extra sugar. <laughs> yeah, why not? Let me ask you, Anna, as the clientele has shifted from being like really heavily Salvadoran to uh, more mixed to a lot of people who aren't Salvadoran, maybe have never been to Salvador, how has the, what people are ordering changed? I'm going to say that it's 
shifted a little bit. And I think that's been like a fine line for us to kind of walk throughout the years in staying authentic, but still staying relevant. And at a certain level, even educating people on our cuisine and culture, right? I'd say that recently we're El Salvadorian and Mexican food, right? Um, It's been more of an interest on the Salvadoran items, the Salvadoran food, whereas before it was mostly the Mexican items, right? The fajitas, which are still popular, but there's been a shift. And then the changes in the demographics in the area, that's, again, that's been a fine line to walk in like offering more vegetarian items, gluten-free, vegan. Sometimes that's not taken well with like the Latino community. (laughs) You mean like the Latinos will look at the fact that you've got like gluten-free stuff on your menu and go, oh, these guys have sold out? Yeah. And it's like, well, they were always (laughs) gluten-free. We're just now pointing (laughs) out that they're gluten-free. Yeah. (laughs) But there's other things that have been pretty intentional also, like our menu will say pupusa revuelta instead of pork and cheese pupusa and somebody who doesn't speak Spanish will come in and say, I'll have the pupusa revuelta instead of pork and cheese, or they'll order the Loroco con queso. (laughs) So they're learning a little bit about our culture. I don't feel that we've modified our recipes or our identity in order to cater to different communities. So Ana, we've done a lot of coverage. I mean, there's just been a lot of coverage about the, I mean, Restaurants is a pretty cutthroat industry with a lot of turnover the last couple of years. has been especially brutal. Tamarindo persists. Why is that? I think there's a number of reasons. For our family, El Tamarindo, it's not just the business. It's the family's legacy. It's a lot more than just the job. When my parents started it, giving up wasn't an option, right? You just figure it out. I see that whole, this Mexican fusion cuisine, I see that as a representation of that immigrant mentality where they knew that most people in D.C. were not familiar with Salvadoran food. However, they knew people were familiar with Mexican food. So they're like, all right, well, let's do Mexican food and we're going to introduce the Salvadoran We'll sneak it in there and we'll figure this out, right? So I see that as a representation of that immigrant mentality where you're going to make it work, right? It's that mentality. It's failure is not an option. A lot of sacrifice. Like I said, my parents work seven days a week, 12-hour days. Again, they were going to make it work. Consistency. My dad has always reinforced that consistency is key. And they created a world where you could kind of do whatever you wanted, and yet you chose to come back and work in the family restaurant, which is a pretty nice testimony. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel like I always had that in the back of my mind. I don't know if they, it was like a subliminal thing, or they kind of talked about it when I was growing up. But I did always have that sentiment that I was going to come back to the restaurant and run it. And here I am. So, Ana, you're looking around the Salvadoran food scene in and around mm-hmm. D.C., what do you think is the next step? What's missing from the equation that you could launch or you hope someone launches? There's a lot of very talented Salvadorans in the industry that could perhaps, I'm not going to say elevated because I don't think that's an appropriate word, but we renovated El Tamarindo in 2016. And some of the feedback that I got back was, oh, but you changed it so much. And it, I liked it when it was a hole in the wall. 
And I'm like, well, why does it have to be a hole in the wall? Why can't you have a nice Salvadoran restaurant that it's not a hole in the wall? Everybody likes to have their secret little spot. I get that. But there are a few people that are doing a lot of interesting things, and that's really exciting. Um, but I, I see that opportunity, right? People coming in with a little bit more experience, perhaps even some experience with the culinary arts, business degrees, and just we're not facing those same challenges that our families faced. We're familiar with the culture. We are half Salvadoran, half American. So that we don't have those challenges, right? We know how to navigate it and it's authentic. So I do see a lot of opportunity there for moving the cuisine out of this space. There's so many restaurants that are Salvadoran Mexican, right? But it was, we had to do that back then. Well, right now, you don't have to do that anymore. It can just be Salvador and people will recognize it. Right. And the trends in, uh, towards specificity in DC restaurants are such that within 20 years, it'll be like, well, we're North Salvadoran. Yeah. <laughs> Northeast. <laughs> Oriente <know>. or, <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. Um, so I see that. I see a lot of opportunity there and I see a lot of people going in that direction, which I think is really cool. Anna, what's coming up that we should know about? Our signature event is National Pupusa Day, which we celebrate every second Sunday of November. And also the mayor declares it DC Pupusa Day, which is pretty cool. That started off as just like a small event, you know, offering like specials and people got so excited about it. We had people that wanted to incorporate themselves into the celebration, whether it was as vendors or artists. And it kind of turned into a small festival in a very organic and beautiful way. So that's coming up second Sunday of November. So I hope I to... will be there. Beautiful. Yay. <laughs> awesome. Ana Reyes, this was so much fun to have you here. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me here. And before you go, here's some quick news. A 31-year-old who lives and works in D.C.'s Palisades neighborhood is suing Park Police for allegedly using excessive force while arresting him in July. Jonathan McKinney says he was exiting a park near his home when officers jumped out at him, tased him three times, and sat on him. He was held in jail overnight and then says he was released with no charges or explanation. The U.S. Park Police say they take all accusations of misconduct seriously, but they can't comment beyond that. Meanwhile, D.C. has a chronic case of lead pipes, and it's looking like it will not meet its goal of replacing them all by 2030. A new report recommends that lawmakers could speed things along if they legally require property owners to replace lead pipes and make the replacements free. In the meantime, we've linked to a map in our show notes so you can check if there's a lead issue in your area. And finally, starting today, DC Health and Children's National Hospital are offering free vaccinations for kids at five clinics across the city. About a quarter of DC public school students aren't yet fully vaccinated, according to city records. You can make an appointment anytime before November 18th. We'll link to more details in our show notes. And that's all for today here on CityCast DC. I'm Michael Schaefer from Politico. Hispanic Heritage Month runs for another 10 days. Share this episode with your friends and check out our newsletter for more ideas of places you can celebrate. Subscribe at dc.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.